0: We've learned a lot about our gangsters and their work with our own intelligence services during World War II. What happened with all that publicly available information and shared intelligence that our then-ally, the Soviet Union, had about our gangsters and how they helped us in the war effort? Do you think it all disappeared from the KGB's memory? By the time the 70s rolled around and FC Agron, KGB agent and the Russian Mafia's little godfather made his way to our shores. Was it wiped from the Kremlin's memory when FC and his successors partnered with Lucky Luciano's former crime family to run billion dollar rackets? Do Americans have any clue what it means that one of the business fronts for Lucky's crime family, Fred Trump had a son that sold a bunch of real estate to Russian crime lords and went on trips to Moscow with KGB agents. Should we have seen it all coming? When Fred's kid and Roy Cohn's protege and career money launderer for the Russian mafia ran for the presidency and won in 2016? These are big questions. Let's ask them of Craig Unger, investigative journalist, Former editor of the New York Observer, former editor in chief of Boston Magazine, and best selling author, including the recent American Compromot How the KGB Cultivated Donald Trump. And one of Craig's lead sources will join us Yuri Shevets, private security specialist, U.S. citizen, and former KGB intelligence chief of the Kremlin's. Washington, D.C. Bureau. Let's begin. So, today (laughs) I get to introduce you guys to um, two fascinating people and some of the two of the most fascinating uh, men I've been speaking to over the course of doing all of my uh, research and work over the past five years. First is best-selling author and investigative journalist, Craig Unger. Hi, Craig.
1: Hi, great to see you.
0: Good to see you. We could see each other, even though everyone's just hearing because we're, we're on that kind of platform. Um, it's really nice to see you. You, you look, um, it's bright and sunny where you are so that's good for writers. You know, it's always, I'm actually in the sound cave. <laughs> so um, I would rather be where you are, I think. And how I would love for people to hear about what you're working on. The book that Craig has just done, uh, that's the top of the New York Times selling list, is American Compromot. And we'll get into that in a moment. First, let me introduce. Craig's guest and our guest, my guest today, which who I'm very thrilled to have, um, former KGB intelligence officer and current corporate intelligence consultant, Yuri Chavetz. Hi, Yuri. Hi. Thanks for hearing me. Thanks for being here. So, Craig's, uh, your latest book is American Compromat, which uh, I'll let you explain it. It's been uh, out for a few months. It's been at the top of the bestseller list. It's a um, I don't want to say shocking, I know people use, you've done a lot of interviews and people use those terms. It's just, it's almost one of those books, one of those pieces of work that I feel like makes things click in people's minds in this, uh, very much in a light bulb moment of what we've been dealing with in the, in the current uh, situation, which we're still dealing with but how intelligence services and politics work and intersect um, and how that's done in a way that's very corruptive for democracy. Uh, uh, I would love for you to get to a little bit of that uh, and also tell people what your background is, how years of work and work that you've done, book after book, investigative piece after investigative piece for decades now, led you to this book, American Compromise, and what you've learned along the way about how intelligence and intelligence communities work with politics <clears throat> and how political parties can become corrupted, uh, not just by uh, the corruption itself, but by the process of uh, doing things in a covert manner or having some kind of uh, uh, covert, uh, you, you'll help me with the words, but something with it, a foreign intelligence service. I feel like that's really at the heart of a lot of the work that you do is that we see how our our presidents even, our US presidents get a little too mixed up uh, when it comes to, to, instead of protecting us, to possibly protecting themselves against some part of their history or something that they've done with a foreign intelligence service or a nation that they don't want revealed to the American people. I I know that's a very specific way to frame (laughs) you, and I'm sorry to frame you in such a specific way, but it has a lot to do with um, the world that I'm trying to expose and how I'm trying to expose it so that people can understand that there's levers that are pulled along the way when it comes to especially American presidents and sometimes those levers involve people that we don't want pulling any levers. And that to me feels like what, what ended up being at the heart of American Compromise of your latest book. Okay, so that was a lot. So <laughs> I just want to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, I, I, I'm not sure exactly where to go, but I think probably the single most important thing uh, that uh, I reveal with Yuri's help, Yuri is very much the key source in all this, yep. is how Donald Trump <laughs> was recruited by the KGB cultivated as an intelligence asset. And that's the kind of uh, sweeping statement that people like John Brennan have made a lot of the key top people in the American intelligence world have said that Trump is a Russian asset. But no one has shown how until now no one has shown how exactly that happened. And with Yuri's help, I went back more than 40 years uh, to 1980, when Trump was doing his very first uh, truly successful project—the <laughs> few that was a genuine success—he was building uh, the the Grand Hyatt Hotel in New York, next to Grand, uh, next to Grand Central Station. And like every hotel, it needed television sets. So where did he get his TV sets? He got them from a man named Semyon Kislin, who owned co-owned. Uh, uh, and so Soviet emigre who co-owned uh, an electronic store uh, near the Flatiron Building here in New York. And uh, lo and behold, as uh, uh, Yuri uh, says, uh, he was a spotter agent for the KGB. And this was the opening of the door that, uh, between the KGB and Donald Trump. This is how it all started. So it starts off there. And tells you step by step over the next 100 pages uh, how the KGB invited Donald Trump uh, to, um, uh, to Moscow, how they orchestrated his trip, how they spied on him, how they filled him with talking points, one point after another until, uh, you know, and I think you should, we should let Yuri tell the story, but, but keep in mind I was able to corroborate a lot of what Yuri says from outside sources, but right. when, when Yuri went back to Moscow in 1987, uh, he saw firsthand evidence that Donald Trump uh, was an asset uh, working active measures for the KGB. And, and I think when you, you take the, this is a monumental thing to say, I think about an American president, that he was actually cultivated by a foreign intelligence service. And I think the, you know, this has been one of the great flaws in uh, the coverage of everything that's happened with Trump-Russia, of Donald Trump, uh, of of the Mueller administration, is we never got a real counterintelligence investigation uh, uh, of what happened. And we desperately need one because what happened was one of the greatest counterintelligence catastrophes in American history. And if we don't understand what happened, it will happen again. Uh, and, And that's what I try to do as much as possible in American Compromise.
0: I, you, and you do it extraordinarily well. And, and yes, thanks to Yuri, um, which is part of the uh, <laughs> the extraordinary moment that we're in right now where Yuri is willing to talk about this um, and be on the record and let everybody hear from him directly. Sources don't typically do that. Um, especially sources who are coming from the world that Yuri's coming from in, in terms of his past career and even his present career. So I, I do I do wanna to get to Yuri. I just wanna land on a couple of things you said, Craig, because I, for this audience, I wanna make sure that they understand some of these big terms that you just brought in. So uh, this idea that a businessman at the time was targeted by the Soviet Union intelligence services, the KGB, in that era, because it was in the, in the mid 80s, early to mid 80s, and that the person who was uh, intersecting with him was a business front as well. So this was all happening in this sort of cloaked world of business, but underneath it, we had um, an intelligence operation, a cultivation operation happening with uh, Donald Trump, who was a famous, only just a famous business person at the time, as far as anyone knew, not a politician at all, but still was a a person to target and cultivate and recruit and uh, turn into an asset of the KGB. So uh, I, this I heard you say that part. I think I got that all correct, right? Yep. Just in the big piece. And then the other, big piece is that you said to run active measures. So can you talk about that just a little bit so people understand? You know, I got into this um, recently. I did sit down and talk with Frank Figlusi, who we both know. And, you know, the sort of idea that that Americans have, I find this is about piercing the American consciousness. Um, The idea that they have about intelligence officers or spies is that they only sort of target a recruiter go after people who can give them intelligence from the other side. And it's sort of, it's always about piercing a spy agency when in fact, often it's about cultivating a a person in the professional world. It's cultivating a business person or getting your hands on intellectual property from the corporate sector in some way so um what do you, when you say active measures even though we want to believe that everybody knows what we're talking about i think a lot of people that will actually be a new idea for so to run active measures means to that he did what they were cultivating him to do what
1: well in specific uh uh this is a disinformation operation and and um, at some point, I want to pass over to Yuri because he can tell you firsthand what I, I'm the reporter and I'm reporting. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna do it. We're oh, gonna pass over know. to him, but yeah. But um, uh, you know, in um, Yuri can rec- tell you about receiving the memo. But but the but in in 1987, after his trip to Moscow, Trump returned home to the United States, and if you look at the press clippings from that era, it's very bizarre because Trump suddenly makes him out to be, he makes himself out to be an expert on foreign policy, on nuclear armed deals and all all this sort of stuff in which he really doesn't have any much much information at all. And it seems pretty clear that this is when uh, the KGB was was, uh, playing, toying with his narcissism and making him say, wow, you're, you're so smart. You've got all these wonderful unorthodox ideas. And and they sort of, uh, Trump went on to tell reporters that. Um, but most importantly of all, when he returned from Moscow, um, he took out a full page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post and the Boston Globe uh, that effectively put forth his first foreign policy statement. And it was as wild and wacky as anything we've heard when in recent years when he became president, yeah. uh, similarly, uh, he was highly, highly critical of NATO and called for, yep. uh, uh, you know, it said we were being taken advantage of by all the our European allies. Uh, he strikingly called for an end of sorts to the, our alliance with Japan. And yep. I didn't know this at the time, but this was a big issue with the Soviet Union at the time, they were desperately trying to break up this uh, uh, American-Japanese friendship. And so this was an active measure and and you see it being cultivated. uh, uh, And it's not just Yuri who told me about it, but it was uh, uh, a big operation for the Soviet uh, Soviet intelligence at the time
0: yeah I think he got on Oprah Winfrey and was able to spew all that as well. Um, so he had access to some pretty big platforms, which made him very valuable. ok. let's let's go to Yuri, <laughs> Yuri. Um, I, I'm just gonna say it again for the audience so that, that so everyone knows it, it is a privilege to to hear from you directly. Um, and I, I I so appreciate that you've uh, w- what you've done with your life in terms of, uh, putting your voice behind a very mysterious world uh, for, to expose it for most American citizens who just don't understand outside of the movies. And now it's been quite a few decades what the KGB was, what the Soviet Union's agenda was with their intelligence services and what an intelligence officer that's a foreign intelligence officer, albeit even one from one of our enemies, would be, be tasked to do the kinds of things that were on your plate to accomplish as an, as a, as an officer for the KGB. So if you could just let everyone know, you know let's, I wanna dive into what Craig was just saying, but also where you were stationed when you were a KGB agent, when you were stationed there and how did it come about that you transitioned from that into then helping to provide um, for us. For you know, uh, not necessarily working for America, but being open to talking about leaving the KGB and open to talking with us about what our enemies had been up to and helping us understand them better.
2: Well, um, again, thank you for having me. And uh, the question you ask, it, it deserves a book because it's a life life story <laughs> about my entire <laughs> yeah. professional yeah. life, which takes like about 30 yeah. years. But in brief, uh, in a concise way. I worked in department number one of the KGB Foreign Intelligence Service. Okay. Department number one, meaning that it was the most important department in the entire Soviet intelligence community because it worked on the United States and to Canada. But Canada was involved only because it was viewed as a bridge or springboard to the United States, to penetrate the United States. Uh, I worked in the mid-80s in the KGB, Washington, D.C. station. Besides that, uh, the department had New York station and San Francisco station. And believe it or not, but uh, my main task and the task of every field officer for my department, operating in the United States, was not to miss signs of preparation of the United States to launch a sudden nuclear strike on the Soviet Union.
0: Now, I believe yes, you. I, I've, right. I, I, I've heard too. You know, Reagan was just this huge fear in that era that he might launch an attack. Like there, that really was right. taken It was seriously. the
2: fear was mutual. Yeah, and remember that. The- time the Soviet Union was behind Iron Curtain. So, even though I worked in intelligence service, I had, a because I worked in intelligence service, I had privilege to read American newspapers, uh, reports, intelligence reports from the United States, but the knowledge of America, American culture was minimal. We couldn't watch American TV uh, when I was a student at the university in order to get access to American periodicals, newspapers, I had to get uh, a special permission from the deputy vice president of the university and then to stay in line in one single library in Moscow in order to get access to this. So again, wow. the misperception was huge. And I, when I was trained in the KGB Academy, we were shown a map of the Soviet Union, which was surrounded, actually encircled by military alliances uh, established by the United States and allies all across the Soviet border and American bases all around the, 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 the Soviet territory. And we were told, look, you can see for yourself what's going on. I mean, the country is in danger and you are the guys who are supposed to protect to save the country. So with this mission, I came in 85. In, in my 85, uh, two weeks after Aldrich Ames. Yeah. The CIA officer visited the same <laughs> Soviet embassy. Anyway, it took me three months to realize that this assignment, task number one was phony.
0: Well, and you said fighting. It was just
2: a it was both. It was it was a fraud. It was a result of undercover bureaucratic fighting and the top leadership of the Soviet Union in Kremlin. Oh. The thing is that you know there was Politburo, the top body which was running the Soviet Union. It considered included, if I remember correctly, 15 people, including KGB Chairman and the Minister of Defense, and For the sake, Brezhnev was already pretty weak and the fighting for his succession was in full spring. And the idea was the KGB chairman and the minister of defense in order to boost their standing, get more money from the budget and become successors to, to, to Brezhnev. They came up with this idea that America is preparing a sudden nuclear strike. On the Soviet Union, and who is to save the country in this situation? The KGB and the Minister of Defense—they became the most important, and as a result, the KGB Chairman Andropov became the last the 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 the, the Brezhnev successor. So, it's just an example of how intelligence disinforms its own leadership of your own country, and this. Disinformation eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. I believe the KGB and this kind of intelligence uh, were the main triggers that led to collapse of the country. But we were, we strongly believed. Well, many of my colleagues in their duties, they were serious about it, and then you know the sense of professional honor. You were trained for this. You were sent to accomplish your mission. You got the task. The task must be done. Yeah. So, on this basis, actually, we operated. And,
0: and yet, you had enough information to know who to target and how to cultivate them with some success in certain situations. Certainly, uh, in in that era, as as you and Craig have brought forward with the business of, with this businessman who was who was a New York City uh, a real estate guy, <laughs> um, and and his need for you know I I think I, what I'm trying to say is there was enough intelligence uh, in the KGB and strategic intelligence to know, all right we're gonna we'll set up these things like electronic shops and that will allow us to get you know our our electronics or devices or just business relationships in with um, whoever uh, you know, Kistler might've been targeting in New York City at the time, that that that, that was something important to do as well um, and, and very successfully done. So while there's disinformation happening from within, you, you guys had some pretty targeted strikes that worked out. Would you say that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can say that uh, I strongly believe in the Afterwards, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I was a book where I was very critical of the performance of the KGB Foreign Intelligence Service, and I believe that mm-hmm. I was right. Having learned much more afterwards, I believe that it was one of the best intelligence agencies of the world
0: yeah, in wow. terms
2: of training and accomplishments and uh, you know cost-effectiveness, etc. We wow. were looking for recruitments in specific government agencies, institutions, uh, and business community was one of them. Because uh, business relations, economic relations between the United States and Russia were extremely important. United States was one of the main supplier of grain to the Soviet Union. Without this grain, the country would, would be unable to feed its own people. Uh, Besides, the Soviets needed the Soviets' military industrial complex, needed technology, and they needed status of most favorable nation to be granted to the country, which was denied in the, uh, in the early 70s because of the absence of free Jewish immigration from the Soviet Union. Uh, so business, especially at the higher level, highest level of business higher level of the business community American business community was very important for penetration for this point, uh, point mm-hmm. of view besides important part of the recruitment process was so-called recruitment of prospective agents. People who are students today or just fresh graduates or startup businessmen but in, in 10, 15, 20 years suddenly, they become extremely important. And a good example of this was the success of the Russian intelligence in Great Britain, where in the 30s, they recruited a bunch of students of Cambridge University, and actually right. it was Oxford, Oxford? University. Mm-hmm. Oxford, yes, they call Cambridge, it Oxford Cambridge, Five. Cambridge Five, they were known. Oh, yeah, sorry, Cambridge Five, yes. Okay. And then uh, several years later, some of them became top level diplomats, and one of them became one of the top intelligence officials of the Great Britain. It was the biggest school and afterwards it was it was it was so popular, and Donald Trump just fit into these categories
0: yeah i I think a business elite and especially where they send their children <laughs> it tends to be a pretty concentrated um rich target area there like you if you if you get into yale and maybe into one of their secret little men's clubs perhaps one day <laughs> somebody coming out of that is going to have quite a bit of power since their dads have power or the or the group around them has quite a bit of power so america definitely in the west it definitely works that way I'm one I'm curious, Yuri, about some of the other stuff that that we all I feel like we all skirt around and I'm just trying to come at it straight. And that is that what the KGB would have known about our underworld, about our crime families, especially the crime families that uh, that that the Trump family was mixed up in there was a if you're if we were to go back a little bit in history there was a, a lot of knowledge that the that the world had and and the access powers had and our allies had about um, our crime syndicates and if you just follow the evolution of those crime syndicates literally just a generation You can get to the territory that Fred Trump developed all of his properties in, and the people that he was in business with, and the people that his son was then in business with. So, because a lot of this was in the papers (laughs) and things like things that are sort of in the public domain, would the KGB study that regularly? And then things that were maybe connected to, um, a time where we weren't, you weren't behind the iron curtain and quite a lot of information was coming into Russia and and Russia's intelligence services. Did that get preserved? Did the information that, that, that the Soviet Union had in the thirties and the forties, would that have just vanished or disappeared with a change in leadership? Or does it, does that kind of stuff stay historically inside the intelligence services? And they come back and look at that and sort of cultivate that. I'm asking this, I know it's a long question, but what you just described earlier was a very long game that the KGB would play. And I think Russia probably still does play, right? Of like, oh, we'll cultivate the the next generation and just see what happens. And we'll flood the zone with with agents and operatives and see if we can get some uh, kids out of a university and maybe 20, 30 years down the line, one of them will become a great big, huge leader. Like they're willing to wait that long. So that means to me, that says to me, they keep very careful track of their records and their information, especially from a time, maybe say like the second world war. Like, I I just don't see all that information having disappeared and the KGB being completely ignorant of our American crime families and where maybe there were some entry points there into our underworld? I know that's a strange question because you and I haven't had this before, but for folks listening to this series, it's it, it will fall right in line with a lot of the history we're looking at. And I've just never heard from a former KGB person, what from the Soviet Union slash Russia's perspective, what that's like in their historical records in terms of their understanding of us. Does that make sense? A big question, but.
2: It does, it does. And they say in the KGB, the key, nothing disappears in the KGB. What gets in okay. never disappears. Sometimes okay. it may be okay. misplaced. Sometimes it may be misplaced. Okay. okay. <laughs> it gets in the wrong department or in a dra- table drawer, but it stays there. And second, they say the KGB doesn't forget anything. Yes, okay. the KGB was following uh, information analytically the event of um, big crime families, mafia in in, in in Europe in the United States but it preferred to uh, to some point to stay away from any crime any criminal activity for, for for the reason of safety because it was assumed that any criminal organization is watched by the FBI or police if you establish contact with this organization you yourself, Expose yourself to uh, FBI or police investigation, and you know by association you're exposed. Uh, but the opportunity to exploit this knowledge came in the early '70s, as we mentioned. In the early '70s, U.S. government passed Jackson-Vanik uh, Amendment. Saying that uh, the the United States will grant uh, most favorable nation in trade with the Soviet Union if the Soviet Union allows free immigration, free Jewish immigration from the country, and the Soviet Union was forced to do it in the early seventies uh but they used this opportunity to infiltrate the United States Israel some European country so through these uh, immigration channels with criminals in the Soviet Union and in their agents in their agents I was told um, by an officer, he is high ranking, he's general right now, but in the early 70s he worked in Odessa. It was called a Jewish city in, in the Soviet Union, southern Ukraine, Black Sea port. Almost all people willing to immigrate the to Soviet Union at that time were approached by the KGB with the offer. You will be allowed to immigrate only if you handwrite and sign a pledge to cooperate with the KGB. And I was told that 90% of those approached agreed to write and sign that letter. It doesn't mean that all of them, having moved to the United States, started immediately working for the KGB, most people just fled the yeah. <laughs> and right. yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I'll do
0: it. And then they got right. out. Yeah, and yeah. A yeah. few people
2: came to the United States and turned around almost instantly and started working with in business with the Soviet Union. There we working go. Working in business with the Soviet Union at the time, meaning working with the state, with the government, represented by the KGB in the United States. And this is That's how right. the electronic store emerged in New York. Uh, now, uh, the, it was a remarkable store because it was the only electronic story in the United States selling dual system TV sets, meaning that sets which could show NTSC uh, programs, American, this is American system, and system, mm-hmm. which was used in the Soviet Union. So every Soviet spy operating in the United States, every Soviet diplomat, every Soviet journalist stationed in this country would, at the end of his assignment, would come to the store and buy the set.
0: I mean, okay, I just had to stop there.
2: Right. I,
0: I, so the idea that <laughs> that this very special television, this special piece of electronics, which was only being sold, as far as we know, through this one shop, through Kislin, that was his business, um, and that, that that a an American businessman was like, Oh yeah, let's put all of those in my new tower, my new hotel, my yeah. development. Um for what? Why? Why that? This is a question. This is a question. Well, doing, but
1: I guess we don't know the details of the deal, but uh knowing Donald Trump, he was getting he, he, they were saying this is a great price for these TVs. It makes no sense to have two, uh, two uh, dual system TV set. That's of no real value. Right. Um, but it was uh, at the very least, it was a way of opening the door for Trump to Trump.
0: Yeah. So it it just appears to be this first sort of like business deal. Uh, that the KGB was able to pull off or the intelligence services, uh, uh, Russian intelligence service, Soviet Union intelligence services were able to pull off with a, a very uh, big named businessman who could do something like, I wanna circle back around Craig to what you were bringing up, who if cultivated uh, by, the, by the KGB, which it, it very much appears that he was, and I think you prove it definitively in your book, that he could then come back, be in America as a mouthpiece for the, for the Soviet's agenda. Doing things like talking about, taking out that full page ad. I can't imagine he paid for that. I don't know who paid for that ad, but maybe he did. Taking out the full page ad, um, expressing policy issues, hitting at NATO, and let's get to the Japanese. What was happening that the Soviet Union was, it was so important to them for this American businessman to go on uh, television and take out ads and take hits at Japan. What was that about?
1: At the time, there was a territorial dispute between the Soviet Union and Japan over two islands uh, between the two countries. Uh, um, And uh, uh, the Soviets wanted to weaken American support for Japan. Um,
0: For their economy and everything else. Yeah,
1: right. But but became a major um, uh, disinformation operation, uh, and there was testimony about it before the United States Congress.
0: Okay, so that would be Yuri. Is there is there a term that the KGB would have for him? Is it just he's our our guy of influence? What what that that seems like if if donald was able who whatever the businessman that this, anyone they cultivated was able to actually land some blows some propaganda disinformation blows in the manner that the soviet union wanted that the kgb intelligence services wanted what then happens with that relationship with with that individual
2: well first i should say that at that time americans were largely viewed as unrecruitable so this really? Yes, really. Yes. It was the Cold War. And I remember when you, you know, you meet somebody, you talk, everything is fine. But as soon as you say that you work for the for, for the Soviet Union, for the government, in most cases, people look at you uh, with uh, scary you know, eyes, <laughs> you turn around and run. Um, Because, you know, the spy mania was on both sides and people working um, on sensitive positions just preferred to stay away from anything associated with the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, To recruit somebody in this country uh, required a combination of personal characteristics of this person. You just cannot recruit everybody, you know. Uh, Right. An individual should be vulnerable for recruitment. And during the cultivation process, or they call it development, like you know, film you developed and the, 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 the image comes out. During the development project, uh, process, they established that you have it all with Donald Trump. It's pretty low IQ coupled with super hyper inflated ego, vanity, narcissism, and this is a devastating combination. This is a dream, dream for any human intelligence service. So they saw this guy, and they, they say, they, they realize they got it. They have, this is, this is the miracle, you know. They have he's like great- a
0: unicorn, yeah, and he's, and he's wealthy, and, he's in a, right. and he knows right. how to work the media, yeah, yeah. Now, this active measure, well, I should explain probably what active
2: measure is. This is the highest level of intelligence operation because, on the first stage, you collect information in the field. On the second, an intelligence analyst analyze this information, make recommendations. On the highest level, you do active measure operation of influence, influencing other government or agency or specific individuals to do something for the Soviet Union, unknowingly. So you use at this stage, you use your intelligence information to conduct your foreign policy by clandestine way. And in this particular publication, it was not just about Japan relations between the Soviet Union, United States, Japan. It was they conveyed through Donald Trump, the long-standing strategic KGB active measure, which is, the message is that the United States should break away from all strategic alliances it currently has. NATO, Breaking NATO. Japan, yeah. Yes, making NATO, alliance with Japan and with all other countries with, with which United States, uh, States has had national security agreements. And instead, we'll get together and we'll divide the world. Like Yalta, their dream and still is that Yalta number two, where the two leaders get together and split the world. It was a crazy idea, but it was and still is the strategic, active measure and objective of the Kremlin. And this is what they achieved during the first trip of Donald Trump. So it wasn't just three publications, the three American newspapers. It was the first time when this message was conveyed to thousands of Americans through important newspapers and signed, signed by Donald Trump. And this is how it was viewed. It was viewed as a huge, intelligent success.
0: So when does an, a, 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 an agent of influence, you said unwitting, when do they become witting? And is there anything we can see that sort of flags to us? Oh, oh, he knows what he's doing and he's doing it for the other guys. Um, and what might shift then with with that? And then I wanna get Craig, uh, what might shift then with the, with the KGB services in terms of how they manage and handle him? Does he end up with weekly meetings? What, like How does that go? And then Craig, I wanna get over to our more current moment and um, why you wrote the book. And also just because you've had decades of decades of writing about Presidents and writing about intelligence uh, operations. Where your what do, what is the five alarm fire that your hair is on? Is it on? Is it okay? Are you are you freaking out? I think that your your experience and your perspective is something that everyone needs to hear right now. So I, I'd love to start with Yuri of. We did, did he move? Did he, did he become winning? You know, what, what happens with an agent of influence? Does, do they just keep using them the way they were always using them? Or is it like, okay, now we're going to go a little further with you and let you know what, that, that we want things from you and you're working for us now.
2: Well, there are lots of nuances and lots of okay. clients in this, you know, it's very sophisticated uh, business. It involves personal relationship. Uh, Unless you get red-handed, a spy like Bob Hansen mm-hmm. or Aldrich Ames.
0: You, you cut out a little bit there. You said Bob Hansen. You're talking about uh, the FBI, the former head of FBI counterintelligence, I believe he was, yeah, yes, who was right. who was a KGB agent, and he got caught red-handed, just yes. so people know that. Well,
2: basically, Aldrich Ames was caught almost red, uh, red-handed. Yeah. So unless you got, uh, catch a guy Unloaded with classified information, which he passes by to a Russian agent, and then you know there is no way to deny that he is a spy. Okay, it's clear. Mm-hmm. But if it's, it's not red-handed, there is always a room for plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. An individual can always play what they call a useful idiot, he can say, oh, Well, sorry, I was an idiot. They treated me as a useful idiot, but I didn't know. I didn't understand, you know. They never told me this they're KGB, even though when
0: you write. I thought they were the coffee boy. (laughs) Right? right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah.
2: But when you write a report to the intelligence, to the chief of uh, KGB intelligence, asking to include this guy in the, what they called agent's network of the KGB intelligence, you need to write a report to the top boss. Okay. On one page, describing what has been done with this guy, what are the results, what are the prospects, and then the fine line. We we ask you to include this guy, the, his his nickname, in the agents network of the KGB for intelligence service as an agent. Period. He signs. he's an agent. Uh-huh. This report should clearly say that he, this guy he clearly understands that he works for the KGB intelligence, okay? The way to do it is, well, first, you say, you just say, I'm the KGB, sorry, guy. Well, I was saying that I was a Soviet news agency task correspondent, but in fact, I have to admit, I'm a KGB guy, sorry. Uh, or, you know, to flash a KGB card, Or just to sway allude that, you know, you'd, Show him, show him your connection, which go way beyond connection of a regular government official, you
0: know? Right. Um, so you're saying there's paper <laughs> in the KGB. There is KGB. paper. There must there's be paper. Yes. There must be paper. That's the universe yes. that we're in. Yeah, there's no uh, other yeah. world that we're in.
2: Right. That's Now, the world. about the procedure, how you work with, while in the process of development, et cetera, Usually the meeting should be held with this kind of uh, subject uh, at least once a month, once or twice a month. And this is usually the guy from the residency or KGB station in New York who would go out and meet. With Donald Trump, what was good, there was no reason to do dead drops with him. You can do it, you can do it in the best, like in the best situation, the best, the, the, like they say, the best cover is openness. You do it on the open.
0: Wow. And then so so he, that's the that's the lesson there of like, just you have, come you over for a, a meeting and we'll just talk yes. and I'll just say it out loud right. to the, right. yeah. Right. And yeah. Look, look,
2: at that time in the called War, the FBI, all everything was focused on classic espionage. This is where you have a guy who who is a CIA agent taking classified documentation home and then sort of through dead drops passing it onto the KGB. This is, was the focus of the FBI operation. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, FBI operation. And here you have open meeting. People are talking about politics. Blah 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 blah. But 15 years later. This guy is the president of 20 years later. This guy is the government official, not to mention
1: ah. the president
0: of the United it, States. It, 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 if I may- It makes me sigh, it's so big. It's, so, it's such it, a big idea. What's
1: so wrong with uh, wanting to develop a building in Moscow? And so much right. of w- what I learned about counterintelligence uh, is that real terrific intelligence operations can be all done openly and legally, that is, oh, I wanted to develop a building in Moscow that's their cover
2: all right
0: yeah. yeah or a beauty pageant later on, right, or whatever it is it just yeah. as long as as long as you're just sitting and having drinks and sharing a meal together, um, what's wrong with that? that that that's the world that um uh, it's, it's very much like a mob boss.
1: As uh, Biden is preparing to meet Putin, in yes. the talks today, it, it said the White House uh, that Biden has said uh, that Vladimir Putin is a killer and he regards uh, Putin as a mafia boss.
0: Right. And I, we should tell people this is, we're doing this on June 9th. So uh, this literally is the day. I think right before I, I, I came into my into my uh, blanket fort here, where I do all this audio, um, I just was saying there that, that President Biden and uh, and the First Lady were getting on the plane to head off. So um, we don't know what's going to come of this, but you're right. It's, it, it's good that our president now is at least calling uh, the current head uh, of Russia, what he is. And Yuri, I've heard you say before, you know, the way to deal with this Russian aggression that we're dealing with in this current moment that we're in from the cyber attacks to what happened with that last presidency as well, um, to, to pipeline stuff, the whole thing is that you have to, I believe you said you have to sort of keep a fist right up under their nose and let them know, we see you, we know who you are, we know who you're up, what you're up to, we're gonna call it out. They have to see strength from us, not appeasement. And uh, because they'll just take, for, when it comes to someone like Putin and the security services around him, they'll just take more and more and more and more and more. If they feel like they can get away with it, they're gonna get away with it. They're just gonna keep pushing. And we have not been pushing back at all. Uh, so I hope I see that. Did I say that right, Yuri? Was that what you're saying Yeah, what you're, absolutely. You have
2: to clearly understand that Russia is a unique unique state in the sense that this is the first time in the history, as I understand it, we have a mafia state. We have a situation where the mafia clan with the godfather at the top, with Putin, Whose name is Putin, run the country, and the entire government apparatus, including intelligence service, including the military, is serves serves this mafia clan. So you should treat, and the the culture of this mafia clan is the same as the culture was was the culture of mafia clan in Chicago in the cities, and you know. With all American experience, you understand that there is just one thing they understand: this is when you are dealing with them from the position of strength. Twenty years, I believe, after collapse of the Soviet Union, with independent Russia, independent from whom? From the Soviet Union, okay. But I believe that in terms of policy towards Russia, have been wasted. It was a waste of time spent on useless, senseless uh, attempts to reset. Uh, relationship yeah. with, with the Kremlin to build personal relations with with Putin, etc. It's just a waste of time. And yeah. while, you know, all those attempts were underway, the relationship with Russia were getting worse, worse, worse. So the only attention is, I, is, is it's time to finally realize that the only position is position of strength, and the policy of containment.
0: Right, and it, it, to, to really n- drive that home, um, what it was that actually uh, pushed back, the strength in the 1930s and the 1940s and beyond, the strength that we had with our law enforcement, our Department of Justice, um, uh, and even our state uh, uh, district attorneys, in pushing back against organized crime and these uh, these mob bosses, was by taking their money. It was by actually stopping the process, disrupting the process, and getting on the them on the crimes around their money. That's the only reason that these these men were doing what they were doing is that they were profiting, and they 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 were profiting off of vice. They were profiting off of human misery and the way that we were able to effectively enforce our laws and protect our citizenry against their great and massive exploitation of all of us was to to get them on on their money, on their finances and then seize that money. That's the strength that they need to see. They know they could always, they always knew they could get away with murder. It was the financial rackets that terrified them when it came to law enforcement getting into the financial rackets, to disrupting the business. And I frankly don't see all that much different with Putin and his oligarchs and, and the security services around him. There, It seems to be really the intelligence services there appear to be all about wealth accumulation, vast wealth accumulation. And disrupting that money would be the thing that would actually be, to, to my opinion, would be the strength that this Putin needs to see. He needs to see, we're gonna take your money. We're gonna stop it. We're gonna stop the flow of income coming into your wallets. Um, I hope that we can do that. I don't know if you have an opinion on that, Yuri, if you think I'm right yeah. on that or not.
2: Yes, yes, you had the right button. <laughs> this is the only <laughs> right button which, which exists. You have to go after money. And uh, there are lots of them. According to credible statistics, during the 20 years of uh, Putin's presidency, 1.2 at least 1.2 trillion dollars have been taken out of Russia and deposited including Europe, Western countries, offshore, oh, Europe and the United States. Now, the indication that the dirty money is that the russian government the russian law enforcement is not looking for this money because if they have a guy who flips with money stolen from the government they prosecute they they're looking they want they sent uh, put up put out red notices through the interpol but they're not looking for this 1.2 uh, trillion dollars meaning that they this money is ultimately under the Kremlin's control and control of the Russian intelligence agency. It's a dark cash they can use to corrupt, to do, I call this process, the shredderization of Western political elite in Europe. This shredderization comes after... Uh, Schroeder, yes, the former chancellor of uh, Germany, who became the higher level employee of Gazprom almost immediately after he stepped down from his uh, public office in Germany. Now you can call it Trumpization of political elite in this country. Uh, So you need need to, to, to go after this money and there is a way to do it because Russia, besides being a mafia state, under Putin, it has become a terrorist state. You have a situation, you have plenty of evidence around the world where the Russian intelligence agency commit terrorist acts. They kill people. They shut down airplanes. They commit act of international terrorism. And I believe it should serve the legal a legal foundation to go after this dark money, which are the blood of this corrupt
0: regime. Uh, yes, uh, yes. 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 <laughs> back at you. You hit that button. I agree. I agree. Um, it, there are ways. And, and it's crazy if we come all the way back to, to our crime families. We know better than anyone when it comes to U- U.S. law enforcement how to go after organized crime <laughs> and mob bosses and especially mob bosses that have fused into, uh, uh, into terrorists. We really do. We just need to approach this man that way, and um, uh, let's hope that that Joe's doing it. Uh, our president. Okay, Craig, how's your hair? Is it on fire? What's it's happening awful. with you? I, I, so that so everyone can know. You know, Craig is also a friend of mine. In terms of every once in a while, I bother him, and I'm like, "What's going on? What is this? Oh no!" Um, so I, I always appreciate. Your thermometer, um, your perspective. You were the one who called that Trump presidency an attack on NATO and and the greatest intelligence operation and sort of and counterintelligence when it comes to the U.S. failure in history. So you were the, the canary. You really were the first person who saw it, saw it clearly for what it was and called it out. And you've written two books about it now. And you're, you're constantly at it. I cannot thank you enough for that. Everyone needs to thank you for that. Um, and how is your hair? I mean, we all, we all want to hear from you because you have this experience and insight that is, that is so rare. So, well, it's
1: just... It, it... It's a we're in a very weird moment, I think, because it's not over. Just because Trump is gone doesn't mean that, that the whole conflict has ended at all. It's very much uh in play. But I think uh things are very fluid and there are a whole bunch of forces that are up in the air that are and and it's hard to evaluate and assess them. One is I think Biden has been really really strong, but he's still uh won by just the slimmest of margins and the big fear of course is if the republicans take back the house of representatives and that's quite possible and they'll do whatever they can they are still the party of donald trump it means they're still the party that's uh, run by russia i see it almost as equivalent to the uh party of regent the way the party of regent was in ukraine it was a puppet for russian uh uh, uh kleptocrats and so forth. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we had that as a very real problem. And if if the Republicans are able to take back the House, I think Biden will be completely neutralized. And that's scary. Um, Yeah.
0: I don't want to be (laughs) Crimea'd. I'm not interested in that. Right. right. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. We we also have things like the solar winds hacking and, uh, I, you know, what, what what is scary to me is I think we don't really know the depth and the breadth of that and how dangerous that can be. And does it mean Russia has penetrated the uh, power grids in various states? Um, we, we saw hacking, like, in uh, Tampa. This, I, I should say, has not been formally attributed to the Russians, but the T- Tampa water supply was penetrated by hackers. And they re readjusted uh, things to try to amp up the supply of lye in, in water by a factor of 100, which would have poisoned everyone in the area. Uh, now, it turns out someone w- was paying attention at the water treatment plant, was, was paying close attention wow. and saved all those lives. But water, when it comes to essential commodities, water is about as essential as you can get. And it's just scary in terms of we don't know the depth or breadth. I mean, supposedly 18,000 different agencies and organizations were penetrated through the solar winds hack alone. And that can mean major uh, parts of our infrastructure, both government organizations, municipal ones, and so forth. So that, I mean, that kind of roar, I think is going to go on and, uh, I, I can't I can't possibly predict it except to say I think being on offense is easier than being on defense you know and, yeah uh, uh,
0: good point good point we need to shift our shift our strategy a little bit <laughs> okay I want to let you guys go I know I need to I, I just have one more question for Yuri it's a big global question but I think we can answer it quickly with bouncing off of what. Craig just left us with. So let's say that we have a lot of, hopefully we'll reaching a very broad audience in many who may have voted for Trump twice, uh, may have family members, right? We all have friends and family that, that didn't have that same perspective on what that administration was. And even to this moment that we're in right now, um, hopefully, this will get resolved quickly. Um, have a very different point of view on what the insurrection on January 6 was, and that it was like a picnic or nothing really happened there. Um, so let's say that uh, because enough Americans just sort of shrug and think it's not that important. To what does it matter if the Republicans get control in 22? And oh well, we, you know, why have this democracy? You know, we can, you know, let's let the president. Trump back in and maybe he wants his insurrection or there's some new person that wants to just do away with democracy, do away with the voting processes, be able to have an insurrection and overturn the the voters for what they want. What does that look like that Americans can't quite see that it looks like, including, I think, our Republican, uh, our politicians on the Hill, there's so many that are going along with this Idea that yeah maybe we don't need a democratic process ah oh, maybe we don't need the votes and the vote right like and stopping all that and I feel I feel like it's almost like for me in my world of orga- of studying organized crime it's as if we are back in the thirties whenever we had a lot of people reading about Al Capone and thinking he was some kind of folk hero and like you know how bad would it be if Al Capone was president and ran this country because people were in a depression and they you know it just It looked like this was a guy from the street who got things done my way. So um, what would it be like? What do Americans need to know about Russia and Putin and what he would deliver to us? Let's say if Donald Trump had been able to overturn that election um, on January 6th and remain in power or if in 2022, the Republicans uh, get a hold of everything, and then we don't have presidential elections the way we used to have them in the past. I feel like they think it's no big deal, a lot of Americans. They don't think that, they don't really know what's waiting on the other side of that deal. So what do we need to know? What are the big things we need to know about about Putin is Russia?
2: We need to know that, um, and when I say we, I include myself because I am the citizens in the mid nineties. I believe that America needs to know that Russia is in war, uh, Cold War II against the United States. <clears throat> and unlike the classic Cold War, which used as the main tools or weapons, rockets and uh, nukes, in this or Cold War II, the main, <clears throat> the main um, weapons and tools are corruption, dark money, and disintegration of the United States from within. And I should tell you that from my vantage point, they have reached a great deal of success, especially under Donald Trump. Dividing from America, America from within was the biggest dream in the Soviet Union, never happened. But now it looks like there are serious signs of... Uh, that this process is underway. It was underway under Donald Trump and requires healing. And God forbid if, if, if this process of healing uh, reverses itself.
0: Uh, so, what correct? Would it be lo- yeah. What would it be like then if Putin was our de facto mob <clears throat> boss? What would it be like for Americans?
2: Well, uh, they will establish uh, uh, like the office of the Russian governor in Washington DC who will teach America how to live. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. uh, they would uh, sack out uh, the money from the United States as much as possible. technology. Uh, so you will live in a situation where Russians are living right now. There are no elections. Putin actually is not the president of Russia in a normal sense because he has not been elected properly since first election into year 2000. After so no the- self-government.
0: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely.
2: He is an imposter. Yeah. And uh, the, the, there is no parliament because the parliament is just extension of the government uh, filled with puppets. Uh, so you'll have the same.
0: Okay. I know we know that it's, it's not something that should shock people. This is the way the world works. This is of course what's happening because it's what's all, it's what always happens and it's what will continue to happen until we do things differently. Um, and I think a big part of doing things differently is just for the average American to kind of wake up and open your eyes and, and understand what is afoot and what has been afoot all this time. Um, so I, I think we'll leave it there unless, uh, Craig, do you, want, do you have anything else you want to add to that? I saw your eyes sparkling no, a little no, bit. No, I just, talking. you know, the, the
1: important ideas. thing is this is going to go on for a while. This is not over yet. And I don't know how it's going to end and exactly how the next chapter will shape up. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think Biden's been strong, but I think it, it's a fragile hold on power. And we have to be very, very careful. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I, this is a time for hypervigilance. Okay. So I would say your hair is at like a medium flame.
1: It's still gray. <laughs> so,
0: um... <laughs> I do. I do. I have a lady that helps me with that. So, <laughs> oh, okay, guys, listen, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for the continued work that both of you are doing. Um, Craig, I look forward to, you know, what's coming next from you. Uh, Hopefully a vacation. I think you've earned a a little bit of a vacation. That would be nice. Um, But maybe something really special after that. All right. Thanks, Yuri. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman, editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible.